Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. I'm happy to be here. I feel super welcome. It feels like home and nice to see so many familiar and friendly faces. But I've got a confronting question to ask us at the very start of today. How's everyone's New Year's resolutions going? <laughs> I can hear some chuckles in the room. I joined a gym. I've been once. Not going so well. Uh, why do we make New Year's resolutions at the beginning of the year? Is it because we're hopeful that this year can be something different, something new, something like it never, we've never been before? Uh, what is it that make, makes us want to make New Year's resolutions? And if you're anything like me, it's only the 23rd of January and your New Year's resolutions are starting to grind to a halt. Maybe that's because of COVID. Maybe that's because of a whole bunch of reasons. But what is it? Why do our New Year's resolutions begin to make a, a bit of a slow grind? We, we choose to get fit. We choose to read our Bible every day. We choose to start that small business by a certain date. We try and have activities. We try and give up something. We make this resolution at the beginning of the year, and even by week three, we're like, oh, why did I choose to do that? I reckon New Year's resolutions are tough because we try and fit it all in. We try and do more. We try and be more. We try and uh, get everything done. We try and cram everything into our life. Because, you know, when gyms that are full on the 3rd of January are beginning to wane even by the 23rd of January, and by the time we get to the 3rd of August, ghost towns. Gyms are ghost towns. Why do we tr- we, our resolutions begin to fade? Well, I reckon it's because we're really busy. We try and cram everything into the year, and we end up, excuse me, with no margin left at all in our life. And when we have no margin in our life, there is little space for things that don't have our full and undivided attention. See, whatever plan A we can make at the beginning of a new year, whatever plan A we make is ultimately destined to fail because we have to try and do more. My question for us on the 23rd, when my plan A is beginning to look a bit shaky already, is what is your plan B? I'm not talking about your plan B as in your second plan. What is your plan B-E to be this year, to be more present to God, to be more present to those around you? What is your plan B when your plan A begins to fail? Today we're in the middle of our Summer Psalm series, and I had the privilege of preaching this at Mackenzie beginning of the year, but I think it's actually a word in season for us at the moment. We are, even today, I'm here because of a COVID jumble up and a different change, we live in a world at the moment that is just uncertain. We live in a world where things are frantic, things are muddled, things don't quite seem to be going to plan A. I think there's a word in season for us at the moment in some Psalms that tell us how to be with God more. We're going to look through the life of King David a little bit today and see that for him, he had one priority of his life. He did a lot of great things. He has got a name that's acclaimed in history, but his one priority in life was to be with God. It was the one thing he wanted. And we're going to hear about that in Psalm 27. It's going to be on the screen. But if you've got your Bible, I'd love to invite you to open it up and read along with me Psalm 27. I'm going to read the whole thing out. Here we go. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. 
One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes or false witnesses rise up against me, spreading malicious and false accusations. I remain confident in this that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and courage and take heart and wait for the Lord. It's a beautiful psalm. I actually love this psalm. It's one of my favorites, hence why I get to preach on it today. But there are two verses in here I think are really trying to speak to us in today's context of a do, 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 do kind of life. See, in verse 4, David claims and sings that there is just one thing, one priority of his life. What is it? One thing I ask of the Lord, this one thing shall I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his holy temple. This word dwell for me conjures up images of family, of belonging, around a big dinner table where we dwell together in a dwelling. It's a place where we, we share all that we have and are are committed to being with one another. It's a beautiful word in my mind. It's not a promise that life will go smoothly because even when we dwell as family, things don't go smoothly. But at the end of the day, in the midst of tough circumstances, David has this one thing he wants to do, to dwell with his creator and to see his beauty, his kindness, his love, his forgiveness and his faithfulness. And verse 14, it closes out the psalm, says... Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. See, wait here has actual two meanings. When people heard the, wait, the word wait, this is what they thought. It has a, an inner posture of waiting. I'm going to actually turn my heart to be facing God and to wait. To not put my own agenda in front, to not think, think more highly than I ought to, but put myself available to God to speak and wait for his response. To hear, to, to listen, to wait effectively. To do that, our heart and our hands and our head all need to be aligned as we wait together. Or in other words, our motivations and our actions need to align. We need to wait and posture ourselves before the Lord. But it also, has, uh, but also means we have to have our full attention on Him, to wait upon His every command and wait upon His every need. But waiting also means to have a physical posture, to actually have our hands open and ready to present and wait upon the Lord to serve Him in every, every, every way we can. Waiting like this means that everything of our own life, our own ambitions, our own plans, our own hopes, our own dreams, even our own fears and our own failures, our flaws, they all have to take a back seat so that we can be fully present to the One who loves us. See, 
David didn't always get this right, the author of this psalm. But he always, always, always seeks after God to repent of his sin and reposture himself to wait upon the Lord. To seek forgiveness when he's got it wrong. I think this is the key why David is called a man after God's own heart. And we're going to see that David did some pretty rotten things across his lifetime. But he's still called, throughout the annals of history, a man after God's own heart. Why? Because even in his deep sin, he is redeemed because he stops, repents, and waits and postures himself before the Lord. Because no matter what he did, his one desire was to dwell with God. There's probably no better picture of this repentance and desire to be with God than in another psalm, Psalm 51. The words of the song I'm about to read come after David has done some terrible things. See, David was uh, plucked from obscurity by the prophet Samuel, gone, this is the new, who's, who's going to be the new king. Out of nowhere he comes, and he, he kind of gets asked to sing in the, uh, the court of King Saul. He's got a beautiful voice, plays the lyre, soothes the king when the king is in distress. And out of nowhere, this little boy comes to deliver his armor to his brothers and suddenly they're facing this giant Goliath and he's the only one in the army that says, oh yeah, I'll have a go at that, I can take him. And that slingshot swung from his thing, hits Goliath in the head, kills him, he's dead. Suddenly, he's this great warrior of great renown. This kid from the middle of nowhere, this, the tribe of nothing in Israel is suddenly elevated to be this mighty man of God. He begins to win many battles, begins to be put in charge of a lot of armies, and suddenly King Saul begins to get jealous of him. Literally, David begins to, to, to flee for his life for many and many, many of those years. You can read about it in Kings and Judges. He flees because he's being chased for his life simply because of the man that he is. See, after all of this, King Saul ends up not becoming king anymore. You can read about it. King David gets elevated to become the promised king of Israel, the one they'd all been waiting for. He's got many accomplishments, many, many battles won, many songs sung. He is the man of all men, really, at this time. But in the midst of the height of things that are going right for King David, he sees a beautiful woman called Bathsheba. He desires her, and he takes her, and gets her pregnant. And to try and cover his tracks... He tried to bring his husband, her husband back into town, Uriah, at just the right time so it looked like the kid might be his, but that plan fails. So instead of owning up to what he does, he sends Uriah to the front of the army so that he might be killed in the first wave of battle. See, King David here commits a terrible, terrible crime, a terrible, terrible sin. And this song that he writes comes at a moment where his sin has been laid bare publicly. See, the prophet Nathan uh, has these events revealed to him and confronts King David. And David, in the midst of all the, his accomplish, accomplishments that are sitting in his sack of accomplishments, he's got it all there, ready to go. This one big sin has done, undone him. And he's confronted and convicted publicly. Everything begins to unravel for David and he is utterly destroyed in his inner being. But he repents something we haven't seen from a king yet in Israel's history. See, repentance and forgiveness and this desire to dwell, to be with God, to be made right and be in right relationship with God is the difference here for the heart of King David. And I want to read Psalm 53, sorry, Psalm 51 right now. And in the depth of this pain and repentance, I want you to hear it in David's voice. 
Hear the words of a man who is utterly broken, utterly shamed, utterly found out. Who begins to realize the terrible, terrible things and the depth of his own sin, but who also knows the unending redemption and love of his God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And verse 17 says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Can you hear it? In the words of a song written thousands of years ago, it's a desperation and a cry of, God, I've stuffed up so bad, don't punish me. But it's not, it's not a groveling, hoping, distant God who is just would forgive him. That's not what it's like for David. It's an admission to someone who is close and intimate, to someone he has dwelt with, to someone who he has spent his life being with, to say, to come back. It's not a, it's not a hopeful admission. It's an honest admission, knowing that the one who is love, who is kind, who is gracious, is already going to forgive him. But he repents and asks of it anyway. It's an admission that he's moved out of the presence of God. He hasn't dwelt with God in those moments and desperately needs it back. It's the, it's the admission that a broken and traitorous heart needs to be completely washed white and healed and made whole again to keep him and sustain him in holiness. See, in the moments when we are utterly broken and, bro and, and we fail and we stuff up and we are empty and we've got nothing left and we're confronted with the terrible things that we do, and if we take an honest moment, we all have those because it's in our human and fallen nature. Do we seek after the healing embrace of God like David did? Do we run back to the dwelling place of God to go, God, I need you more than anything right now? This desire to find the embrace and the presence of God only comes from knowing him intimately from dwelling consistently with the one who only ever wanted to make us whole in the first place. See, David's plan A got ruined pretty spectacularly. He was very successful, but it got ruined pretty mightily. And unlike most of us, David has his triumphs and his flaws and failures published in the history books. But David understood something about being with or dwelling with God that I think is important for us to hear again today. David's plan B was to be with God and be in right relationship with him, no matter what he'd done, 
no matter what his plan A turned out to be like. And because he dwelt with God regularly throughout his life, he saw the beauty of God firsthand. David saw God's forgiveness, his love, his compassion, his repentance, his restoration, and his wholeness. He saw God's kindness when David had no right to see God's kindness because of his own sin. God was able to put to rest the sin in David's life and let him live again. This is what it means to dwell with God. To stop doing things in our own strength, in our own talents, in our own giftings. To stop striving and to be with God because he wants to give us rest. For David... Finding this meant going to the tabernacle, the holy tent that God had given them, to worship, to bring a sacrifice, and being praised that he might be made right. But thankfully, we don't need to go to a place to dwell with God. We've just come off Christmas. I know it feels like an eon ago, but every word we sing at Christmas is about God making his presence dwell among us. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. I love singing those carols every year because it reminds us that God is not distant. God is present here with us through Jesus. We don't have to go to a temple. We don't even have to come to Ormo every week to get that. We have that with God's presence every week. See, John chapter 1, verse 14 tells us, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message version, he says, he pitched his tent among us. I love that picture. See, the God who radically forgave David is present here to us right here right now. If dwelling with God opened up David to be made right with him by going to the temple, how much more, when we don't have to go anywhere, God's presence is right here, how much more is God willing to give and forgive us everything we need? My question is this, how are we going to be more present with God, this, with Jesus this year? What is your plan B? The pattern of Jesus' life is that he regularly went to quiet and lonely places to pray, to talk with his heavenly Father, to be with God. He wanted to dwell and to wait upon the Lord. And when we are present with Jesus, we are positioned to wait and positioned to receive everything we need from him that he wants to give us. And what does he want to give us? Matthew 11 tells us, Verse 28 begins by saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants us to be with him so he can give us rest for our souls in a weary and burdening world. To give us rest from the striving we find ourselves in day to day. See, in this passage from Matthew, this yoke picture is this heavy crossbar that would go over the, the front of two oxen, lock their heads in so they could walk side by side. They keep walking in the same rhythm, the same pattern as they towed the heavy, the heavy I'm not going to say machinery, but the heavy stuff that, that would tow, they would tow to plow, plow the field. That's a tongue twister. Um, it helps keep them in step, helps keep them together, helps keep them uh, in the same rhythm. 
the irony of Jesus' statement here. He's saying he doesn't want to put a heavy yoke on us to help us keep in step. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, he's saying that this thing that keeps us in step with him, in rhythm with the one who wants us to walk in his way and give us rest, is an easy, it's an easy yoke. It's actually a non-yoke. It's a burden that's a non-burden. See, Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, I can highly recommend it, describes it like telling a drowning person They've got to put on a life jacket only for them to say, don't tell me what to do right now. Don't you know how hard it is to drown right now? I can't possibly take on another burden to help me in this moment that I'm drowning. But we all know that that life jacket would save them, but they'd say, no, I can't take it. We do this all the time as people. How absurd. We want to have control of our life so much. We want to have the easy option to get out of the mess we're in. But see, life, an easy life is not an option. We're not promised it by God. It's not anywhere in Scripture. But... An easy yoke is. It is the only option. A yoke of kindness that enfolds us into the embrace of Christ, of being with him, of dwelling with him, of being in step with the one who loves us. Again, Dan Ortland says in his book, the minimum bar for being enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is to simply open yourself up to him. It is all that he needs and is indeed the only thing He works with. He doesn't work with my talent. He doesn't work with my treasure. He doesn't work with all the things in my life. He doesn't uh, uh, come come upon those or uh, reveal himself to those who are more holy or those who have it all together or those who have pastor in their title or those who've got great theology or those who pray more or those who have great riches. He doesn't reveal himself up to all those who've got it all together. See, it's all who labor and all who are heavy laden are the ones who are welcomed, and that's us. (laughs) There is no need to unburden yourself to collect or get yourself all together or get all your ducks in a row before you come to Jesus this year. See, it's your very burdens that qualify you to come in the first place. No payment is required. It is a free gift of grace. He says, I will give you rest. His rest is a gift, not a transaction. His rest from striving is a gift, not a burden. Whether you are actively trying to arm wrestle your life into submission right now to get everything under control, or whether you are finding yourself passively weighed down by life's inevitable circumstances going on, Jesus desires that you would find rest in him and simply be with him. In a world where we try and get all the shopping in one trip from the car, because it means we can get to the next thing quicker. Anyone else do that? Try and get all the bags in one hit and you have white knuckles at the end of it? In a world where we spend so much time scrolling on our Instagram feed, just looking at one unbelievably filtered photo to the next. In a world where we are consciously or unconsciously told to do more, experience more, buy more, go and do more, do everything, have it all. Where everything is vying for our unadulterated attention, We've lost the simple art of being with God. Being present to Him. Being quiet. Being simple. Simply being. And I reckon if we just stopped, really stopped for half a minute, we would hear 
we, or we get the impression of God's Spirit speaking to us in a small voice, trying to get our attention, that says, be with me. Just be with me. Being present to God means he's got our full and undivided attention. And John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, says, attention is the beginning of devotion. When I was a youth pastor, uh, we did something for a few years that I got ridiculed for a lot. Um, we would watch on the first night of youth group for two or three years, I can't remember how many years we did it because we got a lot of backlash. We would watch the movie Wally. Anyone else love Wally? It is, hands up if you love Wally. Honestly, if you haven't seen it, it is the, honestly, the best Disney movie going out there. If you can fight me on that, I'll fight you to the death. I love it because Wally is the best movie. I'll tell you why. Do you remember in Wally, there's that little, little trash compactor robot who's wandering around an abandoned earth, making trash piles. It's his only, his only job. And suddenly, out of the middle of nowhere, comes this beautiful, sleek, amazing, from outer space robot called Eva. She's, she's beautiful. She's sleek. She's clean. Very much not like Wally at all. But she's got a mission. She's kind of ignoring him and going around trying to search for what was it? It was a, it was a plant. She's got a mission to, to get on with. So they're kind of going around doing adventures and suddenly they become close, they become friends, but suddenly Eva finds this plant and boom, she shuts up shop. She's found it. She's sent this beacon back to the spaceship. She shut up shop. The plant's gone inside her. She stops and she becomes this motionless and moving pod, something that doesn't move. And Wally has got no idea what's going on. This friend he'd been making suddenly has not, is totally unresponsive. There's a great scene in that movie, and I wonder if you can remember it with me. There's a scene where she's just standing here like this, and Wally puts her in a little boat and sails her across the pond. Remember that, remember that scene? Remember when it's, when it's raining, he puts up the little umbrella and holds it over her, and he gets struck by lightning and pulls out another one? Remember the scene where um, he, it's Christmas time, and he wraps the Christmas lights around her and lights her up so that she can enjoy Christmas as well? I love this movie. It's the kindest, most beautiful movie you'll ever see. But Wally is utterly and completely devoted to Eva. And I showed it at the beginning of youth group every year because I was a youth pastor in Ipswich, and Ipswich is rough and tumble. I wanted to get this in the kids' hearts and minds that we needed to be a bit like Wally this year, to be devoted to one another, no matter what things look like, to be with one another, no matter what things look like, to be utterly devoted to each other. I've got copped a lot of flack for it because kids apparently don't like watching that movie as much as I did. I was the only one watching it like this at the front of the auditorium every year. But this idea, it's, it's a beautiful picture of how we can be devoted to one another, but it's also a great picture of how God is devoted to us. In the moments when we aren't responsive, we shut up shop, we've got nothing left and we just stand there and we're just ignoring the world around us or are so overwhelmed by things around us, we shut up shop. God, like Wally, moves toward us. It is the pattern of God from the beginning to the end. He moves toward us in whatever, however we're responding and is devoted to us, completely and utterly sold out to us and devoted to us. But we can also be devoted to him in the same way. Except he will never be unresponsive to us. We all need to be a bit more like Wally, Right? Are you a Wally? <laughs> My question is, he, this Wally just wanted to be with Eva. My question is, how are you going to be that devoted to be with Jesus more this year? How will you fix your undivided attention on him and be devoted to him and simply be with him more? And honestly, it's not a question that I can answer for you. 
It's actually not a question you'll get from a podcast or from this stage, ever. For this realization of how to be with God comes in its own time. And when you're in deep relationship with God, when you ask him how. You want to be with Jesus? Simply ask him, Jesus, show me how to be with you. And he'll show you through scripture, through conversations with friends, through the, the whisper of the Holy Spirit when we stop and open ourselves up to be present with the one who is already present to us. Only if we ask. I spent most of my 20s uh, saying yes to absolutely everything. I uh, was volunteering 28, 30 hours a week at my local youth group uh, and working full-time at the same time. Uh, I, I would uh, say yes to every camp under the sun because I love going on camp. I love leading on camp. I got asked to lead a whole bunch of youth camps and stuff across the state in Uniting Church and a whole bunch of other places. I um, did uh, radio for a season because why not? You know, I can say yes to that. I would drive up at uh, midday on, on, uh, from Ipswich on midday on Friday, rocket up the range to Toowoomba, record six hours worth of content in about an hour and a half, and then rock it back home, so I'd be back at home at youth group by five o'clock, ready for youth band practice. I would say yes to everything. I said yes, I was a chaplain, uh, that's where my ministry career started, but I said, after doing one year of chaplaincy in one school, I said yes to being a chaplain in five schools. SU doesn't let you do that anymore because it's bonkers and stupid. No one should do that. But I said it because I believe those kids needed a chaplain in their school in those country towns. I said yes to everything, and close to the end of my 20s, I was rocketing towards a burnout cliff at a million miles an hour. I had a really good friend and pastor of mine who realized that I was rocketing towards this cliff, that if I didn't stop, like Thelma Louise style, just right off the edge, if I didn't stop, my ministry life would actually stop with it. I was very grateful for this wonderful friend of mine who invited me to come and work at their church. I was so crispy on the inside. My relationship with Jesus, and mind you, I'm still working in, in full-time ministry jobs at this stage. My relationship with Jesus was how I would describe like mid-20-year-old roommates, guy roommates. Come home at the end of a busy day, Jesus is like, Brad, you, I'm so glad you're home. I want to spend time with you. Can we, can we hang out, have dinner? And I go, Jesus, I've had a big day. I'm going to grab these Cheetos and go up to my room eat them in bed, get them all over myself, sleep, wake up, get out early, go back and do it all again. I was still in relationship, in the house, dwelling with Jesus, but my relationship with him was pretty broken and crispy and dry and, and, and had no life to it. And this pastor invited me to come work for her church and she let me operate at, at a max 30% capacity and let me begin to kind of heal, but she sent me on a retreat because I knew that I couldn't keep going in that way. I was invited to go down to a retreat down in Melbourne. The first week of this retreat is all about working on the inner life. And the, the second day is a whole day of silence, solitude, prayer, and fasting. And I'm thinking, ugh, gee, great. I wasn't really in the mood for that because I didn't really want to confront Jesus who I've been kind of ignoring for about 12 months. I got into that place in a not a great, healthy way. Remember walking down to the bank of the Outer River and sitting out on this rock, and in a moment like King David, my life just began to unravel. I've been living like a fraud. I've been, been spending the last 12, 18 months in ministry jobs, in the ministry career, but my relationship with Jesus was effectively non-existent, and my life began to unravel, and I was sitting on this rock, 
just beginning to let my life unravel around me, thinking, I'm done, I can't do this. And in that moment, I watched a bee begin to fly down. And it sat on the rock. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but a bee kind of got to the edge of the water, and the bee began to drink water. I'd never seen a bee drink water before. And in that moment, I had this unmistakable presence of God drop into my life again for what felt like the first time in a long time. And in the closest to the audible voice of God I've ever heard, I heard, Brad, if I care enough about this bee to let it drink water, how much more do I care about you? In that moment, my life began to unravel. And I've got this picture of God sitting on that rock in the middle of the Yarra Valley uh, on this day of silence, solitude and fasting. A picture of me standing at the top of a well with a really shiny bucket, very similar to this. And I spent my whole 20s getting into that well, dishing it out and throwing it at people. Everyone was getting to taste and see the goodness of God, a foretaste of the kingdom of God, people getting saturated and tasting and seeing how good the Lord is. And I'm working up a sweat. I'm getting splashed back. And it's, it's a, a great picture until I hear the haunting voice of God say, yeah, but Brad, do you know how sweet that water tastes? In a moment that haunts me to this day, I'd realized that everything, and even though it was good, Everything that I'd done in my ministry life and in my church life at that stage had been done utterly and entirely in my own strength. With my shiny bucket that's polished, made up of the good gifts that I've been given by God. But I never drank deeply from the well to taste and see how good the Lord actually is. It was an unwritten script in the back of my life that I needed to do more, to be more, to, 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 to do more to earn God's love. I don't know where I got that from. It's not scriptural. It's not from my parents. But I realized there is nothing more I need to do to earn the love of God. He simply wants to be with me. And that moment where I gave my life again to God on this rock in the, mirror, the middle of the Yarra River, lying there going God change my life come into my life again I want to be with you change the trajectory of my entire life I wouldn't be here without that little bee my question is what is your plan B what is your desire to be with the one who loves you to just be with him I want you to hear from me that existing in God's presence is enough. It's not an excuse to go, I'm not doing anything now because that's all good. But existing, who you are made to be in the eyes and image of God is enough for Him. And He desperately wants to be with you. Now, there's a rock that I go to regularly, a snapper rocks. It's my rock. I wish you could write a name in it. It's my rock. No one can sit on my rock at Snapper Rocks. And I watch the waves crash over those rocks. We often hear Jason, our senior pastor, talk about his milk crate, right? Going, sitting down on the dam, sitting on it, being with God. And he says, wherever you go to be with God, go there and go there often. We've just got to go and be with God. Timothy Keller posted just before Christmas something utterly profound. 
Buddha's final words, strive unceasingly. Jesus' final words, it is finished. I know which worldview I would rather live under. So I want you to hear today, no matter where you're at, you don't need to strive anymore. You don't need to strive anymore. You don't have to pretend to have everything all together anymore. You don't have to have a picture-perfect plan A. You don't have to go to a temple or go to a church or be in a building like this to be with God. You don't need to strive and arm wrestle your life under control anymore. All you have to do is be with Him. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 tells us His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. In Him, we have everything we need. God is with us today, right now, all throughout this year. And the one thing that David wanted to dwell with and to be with God is the same thing He wants for us right here, right now. And I actually think we should practice that together right now. I want to invite you just right where you are, just to, just to close your eyes. Begin to shut out everything around you and begin to wait upon the Lord. You might want to picture your heart just opening up to Him. You might want to put your hands out in front of you as a posture of God, I'm open to you. And we're simply going to ask. Holy Spirit come you might want to say it with me you might want to say it under your breath but we just say Holy Spirit come Holy Spirit come Holy Spirit come having to do anything or be anywhere or have anything on your mind, just ask God to clear your heart, to clear your mind. And say, Jesus, I just want to be with you. I just want to be with you, God. just want to be with you, Jesus. God, I confess that I put so much stuff in the way of being with you. I'm sorry. just desire to be
be with you, to hear from you, to experience you. Jesus, I choose you. I choose to come back. Restore your relationship with me, Jesus. I choose to be with you, God. God, in this moment, we pray it would be like a moment for me on that rock in the Yarra Valley speak into our life and whisper that we are loved, known, forgiven and free through Jesus' love. And that all that you, God, desire from us is to simply be with you. We pray this in the name of Jesus who loves us. challenge this year in a year where we've forgotten the art of stopping and being still and slowing down is in those moments choose to be with him choose to be with the one who wants to be with you choose to let him just speak to your heart and heal you of the burdens you hold that you don't need to hold to be with him. I'd love to invite you to stand right where you are. We're gonna we're gonna sing, but let the words of this song wash over you today. Sing there, and there it's an older song, but let the words be words that that fill your heart again and reconnect you with your Savior and your friend Jesus. Let's sing. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.